This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. If you're really into books, do you find that you're always reading the same thing as everyone else? Your mates, your colleagues, you're always talking about the same new release. It's what everyone's talking about on TikTok, on Instagram. Is this social media obsession with recommendations on books actually ruining our reading culture? Like, is everyone obsessed with the same titles? Nobody's exploring anything new. Well, later we're diving into book talk, bookstagram. If you are obsessed with book influencers, you're going to want to stay listening. Also, we'll be talking about young disability workers and aged care workers who are feeling unsafe at work. What is being done about it? First, though, has anyone got any service? Hack. I'm literally in the house arrest because I have no network. It's literally SOS. Bro, this is cooked. On Triple J. Yeah, Optus went down and it felt like the whole country was raging. It wasn't just trains, cafes that were affected by this massive outage. It was also hospitals, some people unable to call triple zero. Millions of people were affected. Were you? What kind of impact did this big outage have on your life? Message in 0439 757 It does raise some questions about the way our society works in this day and age, what we do when stuff like this happens. In a bit, we're going to unpack some of those questions. But first, here's Joe Lauder to bring us up to speed. We're extremely apologetic for all the inconvenience that we're causing. We do understand how important it is for all of our customers to be connected. Our systems are actually very stable. We provide great coverage to our customers. This is a very, very rare occurrence. Kelly Bay Rosemarin is the CEO of Optus, and she's here on local radio talking about their major outage across the country today. By the way, she called into the interview on WhatsApp. So Optus picked up on the outage at 4.05 this morning. All up, about 10 million Optus customers were apparently impacted, including about 400,000 businesses. The mobile network and the fixed network is down, although there are some customers who are still able to get their Optus Wi-Fi and connect that way. The train network in Melbourne is just one example of a major service that was affected this morning. Trains were brought to a halt. We believe, though, that they are back up and running but are expected to cause delays right throughout the day. Some hospitals were also affected. It also meant that people with Optus landlines and some with mobile phones couldn't call triple zero if they needed emergency help. That was the case for this care worker who told the ABC he couldn't call for help for his client who was having a heart attack. I couldn't even do triple zero. No bars whatsoever. It was completely dead. I had to run out. There was a guy walking the uh, his dog. I called an ambulance because he's with Vodafone. The Communications Minister, Michelle Rowland, says there's this emergency backup system where mobile phones can use other networks to make emergency calls, but that wasn't working for everyone. Where one network is not available, the mobile device will camp onto another network. Some customers were also having trouble with online banking and two-factor authentication and government services that are online. Also, a lot of businesses had to go back to cash only. The minister says that when it comes time to talk about compensation, they should have proof of any losses. It's important, especially for small businesses, to keep receipts so that any recourse and any redress that may be available to them has that evidentiary base. Even this lady's Wi-Fi cat feeder was affected. Oh, I woke up very early this morning because my cat woke me up because her cat feeder isn't working. 
Luna. The minister didn't say if the cat would get compensation, by the way. Okay, so like, how did this happen? The Optus CEO says they don't think it's a targeted attack on their network. There is no indication that there's anything to do with cyber at this stage. She said they think it was a deep fault in the network and the minister backed that. The core network uh, basically encompasses everything um, from routing to electronics. So it is a fault that is quite fundamental to the network. But she also says that Optus needs to be upfront with people about how such a catastrophic failure could happen. We rely so much on our uh, telecommunications devices and when that's not available, that is noticeable. Hack Triple J. Joe Lauder, with that update, we've got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, talk about an overreaction. One day offline... I don't know, it depends how you're affected. Someone else says, my market business was affected. We take both types of payments, but people just don't carry cash. Another person says, surely we deserve a credit for all customers. Lots of messages coming through. I want to get into this a bit more with a security expert. Brendan Walker-Munro knows a lot about national and digital security. He's from the University of Queensland and he's with us now. G'day, Brendan. Thanks for coming on Hack. Not a problem at all. Pleasure. I guess the big question a lot of people have is how do we have massive outages like this in 2023 that take hours and hours and hours to resolve? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that Optus has sort of tried to get on the front foot as much as they can uh, to say that this was something they think is a a deep network fault, but they're not providing any further information around it. Um, As far as they are saying, it's because they're doing an investigation into the cause. But I think it's really telling that we have these pieces of our our key uh, critical infrastructure in Australia, um, like our roads, our telecommunications, even our hospitals, that if they stop working even for a couple of hours, we really feel the hurt. And it's not just uh, at the individual level, you're also talking about those market businesses, um, people that can't use FPOS. It, it really has a big ripple effect through society. Yeah, the boss of Optus has obviously apologised and, as you say, said this was a technical network issue and very rare. Do we know what could have caused it? Like, could it have been actually a cyber attack? It's another interesting question. Um, the indications both from the minister and from uh, the Optus CEO is that um, there's no indication at this stage that a a cyber attack has been involved. Now, it may be hypothetically and sometime down the track they might come up with some evidence that maybe suggests that a a cyber attack was involved. And if you think about it, um, this is a a kind of thing if you wanted to try and um, damage Australia's reputation or, or, you know, cause some kind of... um, national level incident, going after a player like Optus is probably a good way of doing it. That said, um, Optus is, we would hope, getting very good at kind of responding to these types of crisis incidents. And they've been put on notice by the government after the data breach last year that they need to have their ducks in a row when it comes to managing these issues. So we'd certainly hope that if there was evidence uh, that this was a cyber attack, that they'd be right onto it and trying to find it as soon as they can. Is there any kind of emergency backup that should be in place? Like, why isn't there some kind of system to kick in if something goes wrong? Maybe that seems like a really silly question, but that's what a lot of people would be asking. No, it's a really great question. And, you know, you think about 
uh, for example, a hospital, if they lose power from the grid, for example, then generally they've got generators that can kind of kick in uh, and provide that that gap of power while the, the main issue is being rectified. But if you think about our telecommunications infrastructure in Australia, um, they don't necessarily all have that capability. So you've heard from some people that uh, some of them were able to dial triple zero by camping on other networks. Some of them weren't. It's all a bit sort of hit and miss. And it depends as well if you're in a city or if you're in a regional area as to how much coverage you're going to get. Now, the telecommunications operators are by law required to have contingencies and, and to sort of prepare and war game what these types of crises or outages might look like. So the question really is, was this such a big incident, it actually might have even affected the redundancies Optus already had in place? And if that's the case, then it's actually a, a really big problem for Optus that they're going to want to try and address quickly. Well, the opposition was really critical of the government and saying that they should have done more to help Optus resolve this. They didn't specify what the government should have done. Is there more that the government could be doing uh, to in a, in a situation like this when everything goes down? Um, I mean, you've got to think about what the, the government's there to do. Um, they're sort of predominant issue in this sort of space, um, as I see it, would be that they are looking to try and keep people safe um, and, and protected from sort of imminent or immediate harm. Now, if the outage for Optus had gone on any longer than it had, um, there are some levers within our laws that the minister could have been pulling on. So there's a couple in there that do allow the government to provide assistance to these sorts of critical infrastructure. They can also step in and effectively take over the crisis response. But again, you've, you've got to sort of think about it. That's at really the top end of things. That's like um, potentially a response to like a terrorist attack. That's the kind of level it's got to get to. Um, so in this case, I think from all of the external reporting that we're seeing, um, the government was in really close contact with Optus. They were, you know, getting lots of updates. They were trying to push information out to people, um, which, which of course, raises the issue, you know, how do you communicate with people in this day and age when their mobile phones don't work? Yeah, I guess it probably says a lot about the way we function as a society now. I mean, that's, that's just part of it. We're all online, right, Brendan? Yeah, exactly. And um, I think I was talking to someone, um, I went to a, a small little uh, out-of-the-way store this morning to try and buy something and their FPOS system was out. So I had to sort of trek around to an ATM and luckily I could get some money out to be able to pay for what I needed. Um, but if you think about if you're uh, trying to drive home or catch a train home from somewhere um, and there's a particular road or part of the rail network that gets blocked there's yeah. a big ripple effect that sort of affects everyone in the whole network yeah. so we we are really happy with having all this technology and being really interconnected but it actually means that we get impacted by these sorts of um, little incidents that are by a lot more, by a much larger order of magnitude. It's very true. Wade from Newcastle messaged in and said he had a job in Sydney today, didn't know how to get there because he had no GPS and he had to buy a map. He went really retro. <laughs> um, Brendan Walker-Munro from the Uni of Queensland, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. Hack. No one should have to suffer at work and no one should be assaulted at work. On Triple J. Have you ever felt unsafe at work? 
And did you feel comfortable speaking up about it? It's probably not surprising that young people, maybe in their first jobs, often don't raise worries about safety because they're scared of losing their jobs, or maybe they're told it just comes with the territory. If you're a tradie, if you're in manufacturing, or if you're in a caring industry like disability and aged care, because that's an area that's really at risk when it comes to safety. Shalila Medora's been looking into this, and just a heads up, this story talks about mental health and some pretty heavy topics. There were definitely no red flags when I started, and I was actually told verbally that I wouldn't be thrown into the deep end, that I'd do like a little bit of one-on-one with people just to kind of get a feel for the job sort of thing. Katie Dunn from Dubbo in Wiradjuri country was just 19 when she decided she wanted to work with kids living with disability. While she knew it would be challenging, she wasn't prepared for the number of physical and verbal assaults she'd face on the job. So I started in March of 2020, and I believe the first incident, like assault I have um, recorded is in May of 2020. While working for that company, Katie suffered physical and verbal assault, as well as sexualised threats from clients. In one instance, a teenager she was looking after threatened to murder her with a shard of glass. I was constantly told by co-workers and managers that it's just kind of part of the job. Katie wants to make it clear that she doesn't blame her clients. She says her workplace should have looked after her better. There were no good practices put in place. There was no follow-ups. There was no care. It was just completely negligent. If you don't have that structure in a workplace, things like this are bound to happen. She has an ongoing physical injury stemming from an incident with a client. I'm on the ground because she's yanked me that hard. So I ended up having um, just a small tear in my shoulder from that and being dragged across the ground by my ponytail. And that, that was really traumatic. Disability and residential care has one of the highest rates of serious workplace safety claims of all occupations, according to Safe Work Australia. One in five serious workplace claims comes from community and personal leave workers. In Queensland, the percentage of work-related violence and aggression against aged, disability and youth care workers has increased more than 90% in the last five years alone. The idea that there are unsafe workplaces is one that very much concerns us. Laurie Lee is the head of National Disability Services, the peak body for disability service providers. She says while each provider should have a way for employees to raise complaints internally, there isn't enough regulation to ensure this is happening. There is an insufficient oversight at the moment uh, within the NDIS market around um, uh, providers um, and the conditions, terms and conditions that providers have to pay uh, for their workers. She says NDIS funding means it's harder for providers with clients with complex needs to train staff adequately. It is a fixed price model. Uh, We're currently uh, very um, aware that the pricing is inadequate, particularly around training, supervision, career development. And the situation could get worse. The demand is growing significantly, so the NDIS we know is growing at about 14% a year. That means the need for workers is also increasing. Caring roles are dominated by women and migrant workers. Shweta Day is a workers' compensation lawyer at Slater & Gordon. Shweta says she sees a lot of psychological injuries resulting from unsafe workplaces, things like anxiety and PTSD. Physical injuries can result in psychological injuries and exposure to this sort of environment can also result in psychological injuries. Katie can relate. 
I had a lot of nightmares and flashbacks and pretty typical symptoms of PTSD. And that that was really impacting on my life. It impacted on my relationships, um, you know, with my partner, my friends. I lost a lot of friends because I really isolated myself. Katie has a workers' comp claim in against her now former employer, noting her ongoing physical and mental injuries. And I just thought, I can't let them get away with this. Like, they have destroyed so many components of my life that I'm trying to pick the pieces back up and build again. That was my motivation. Shweta reckons young people are the least likely to want to rock the boat at work and also the least likely to know their rights. She recommends sussing out your options if you're feeling unsafe at work. There is definitely no guilt around protecting yourself and also protecting your ability to be able to get some compensation. Bringing a legal claim will support you financially and access to medical support will also assist you with recovering your mental health. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that story. Someone saying, I work in an acute mental health inpatient unit. Disability care workers are taking these jobs with little to no training on best practices, risk assessment or behavioural support. Another person says they got sacked from their old job because oh, every OH&S issue they brought up wasn't worth looking into. Look, there are heaps of messages on that one. We're going to move on, though. Hack. This is allegedly the best book of the year. People are saying it's the best book they ever read. I've not heard a single bad thing about this book. On Triple J. If you're a big reader, how do you decide which book you're going to pick up next? Maybe you read reviews, you ask your bookworm mates, get recommendations from a local shop. I don't know, a lot of you probably follow book influencers on your socials. There's BookTok, Bookstagram, huge communities there. If you do do that, take the recommendations from online, are you just seeing the same titles recommended over and over again? Because it is something that our reporter Ellie Grounds has noticed, and frankly, Ellie was a bit over it. So she decided that she wanted to find out what is going on. If there was only one book that you could recommend that everyone has to go and read like now, what would it be? This is mine. As an avid reader, taking someone up on a book recommendation and it then being bang on is a hella good feeling. As a not-so-avid social media user, I've only just started delving into the world of Bookstagram and BookTok, hoping they could deliver me some hidden gems. But after swiping for not very long, it dawned on me. Hang on, is everyone just reading the exact same books? Yellow face. Yellow face. Yellow face. The secret history. The secret history. Taylor Jenkins Reid. Taylor Jenkins Reid. I think that it is accurate um, because that's exactly how my face looked too. I have to go out of my way to search for books that I don't see often. The algorithm definitely makes it seem like everyone is basically reading the same 20 colourful, very good in a flat lay on your Insta feed kind of books. So are we just headed for a narrow, homogenous reading culture where we're all just clones of each other? No. I'm Elle. I run an Instagram account called Elle Read Some Books. Elle's been a reader her whole life. She was an English major at university and when she graduated, desperately missed discussing books on a regular basis. So started her account to have meaningful discussions with other big readers. She says, overall, yes, the same books do keep coming up. My bookstagram friends and I are not, you know, we're not big fans of the books that are constantly mentioned on BookTok. But if you ignore the algorithm and take the time to dig deeper, you can find a lot of variety. It's just dependent on how much you want to find these books and how much 
you want to search because I guarantee whatever someone's reading taste is, there's someone with a similar, you know, reading taste that's making content for books that maybe someone, the other person hasn't heard about. Tegan runs an account called The Shelf Edit and started hers because she wanted recommendations from others. And for her, it has worked. Everyone is so different and everyone has different tastes. And I've picked up books that I probably would never have read, you know, if not for these people that have different tastes to me. But she says when she sees people posting about the big viral books, she sometimes gets sceptical. I would really like to know, like, behind the scenes what people actually think of these popular and hyped books. I think sometimes that they are more hyped than they should be for sure. And I think there's a certain sense of FOMO where if you don't like it, you're missing out and you won't get the views and you won't get the likes. And in book world, what's going to get you those likes? A damn good looking cover. I think there's also an undeniable link that a lot of what I think are great covers and very what we call like Instagrammable covers um, are on a lot of these books that are becoming these, you know, 20 that you see everywhere. Mieta Yans is a freelance book cover designer. She says, while we're taught not to judge a book by its cover, that is pretty much what all of us do. And the people whose job it is to sell the books know that. Book designers are briefed more or less um, or directed um, within genres and within trends that are successful at that point in time. Often um, someone, you know, potentially in like a sales role will want to perhaps ride the success of a certain look or a, um, sort of exactly what you'd um, tend to expect to see in a certain genre. But she's not so sure a good cover can save a bad book or a bad cover can kill a cracking read. I don't think a cover will make or break a great book though. I, I think that if the book is good enough, then it can transcend the cover entirely. As always, our friend the algorithm has so much power here. And we know if we can get behind it, there are probably mountains of undiscovered great books waiting for us. But for those who don't do that and do read the more popular books, is it really such a bad thing? Mieta says no. I do strongly feel like any reading is good reading. And I think if people start with, you know, yellow face because they've seen it everywhere and it maybe isn't the most literary book of all time, but it's sort of a gateway into something new for them. I think that those are really positive things that can come out of these sort of communities and spaces. So even though, yes, maybe they spend a couple of years reading the same 20 books as everybody else, I think that it won't end there. Elle agrees. She's just stoked that people are picking up a book, any book, in the first place. Reading has just become a cool thing. Like, reading was not a cool thing when I was in school. My sister's a freshman in high school right now, so she's 14. And she's like, everyone is reading. And I was like, really? Like, where was this energy when I was in school? Pack on Triple J. Ellie Grounds there. A lot of book nerds on the text line. I say that in a nice way by the way. <laughs> I want to get into this a bit more though. Dr. Bronwyn Redden is with Deakin Uni. She focuses a lot on young people and their reading habits. She can unpack this a bit. G'day Bronwyn. Thanks for coming on Hack. It's a pleasure to speak to you. What do you think? Is social media, TikTok, Instagram making us uh, less creative readers? Is it creating this homogenous reading culture? Look, I think there's a tendency to think that when you first log on to something like TikTok and you search up BookTok and all of a sudden you're seeing what looks like the same recommendations are about the same half a dozen books. However, the thing that is really interesting about social media and book social media, which is what I'm looking at, is that 
when you sort of delve beyond the sort of mainstream, really popular apps and accounts, um, there are a range of different reading communities looking at a whole lot of different types of books. Word of mouth is one of the most powerful ways that a reader finds a new book. And it's one of the things that the book industry is always trying to tap into. And I think what we find with digital social media and book content on digital social media is kind of continuation of long existing patterns. So reading has always been social. People who love books like to talk to other people about books. And we've had things like book clubs where people meet in, in real life to talk about books. And what we're seeing on social media is kind of like a digital version of that. I wonder if you've noticed a real change in the culture of reading. Like we just heard from uh, one person who said it's so amazing to see reading considered cool. People want to do it. They There are influences in this space. Do you think, though, there's also this real performative element with people that's crept in that reading may not be always for pleasure? It's for some someone to appear that they're well-informed or to appear that they're well-read or they enjoy books? I think that's absolutely a part of the social media content about books, but I would say is that's not a new phenomenon. Reading has always been part of the way in which people perform their identities, even to the point at which where you walk into somebody's home and you see their bookshelves and there's all of these books there. Have they read them? Do, are those the ones that they read or those the ones they have on display? So I think it's a continuation of an association between reading and identity. Possibly what we're seeing more with book social media is that it's a little bit more visible. It's easier for us to see that content. So it feels like it's happening more, but I think it's probably something that's really been happening as long as we've been humans talking about books. So true. When someone comes over to my place and they look at my bookshelf, I'm thinking, oh, what do you think? What do you think of the books that <laughs> I've got here on display? Is, is there anything, Bronwyn, that surprised you in terms of book trends recently over the past few years? Maybe it's happened specifically because of book talk, bookstagram, that social media element? I think there's two things that have been surprising. When Book Talk first started to blow up in 2020, a lot of the books that became really popular were titles that are known as backlist titles. They weren't newly released titles. They were published in the market, been around for a little while, and all of a sudden people were reading them and talking about them and they shot to the top of bestseller lists. So that's a little bit unusual in book culture. There's usually always buzz around um, marketing of new releases. The other thing I was going to say that does seem to be um, a little bit unusual about book talk is that it does seem to be having an impact on sort of getting people back into reading. So by no means is every reader on, on, on BookTok. In the research that we've done with young people, we found about 30% of teenagers, teenagers, and this is Australian teenagers, use book social media. I suspect the higher number is a little bit higher for people a little bit older in their 20s and 30s, but it's, it's a subset of readers. But what's interesting about that subset is the number of people that say, oh, I used to love books and reading, and then I stopped making time for it. But book talk in particular is what's helped them fall back in love with reading. And I think that's remarkable and something that's that's really a positive sign. Bronwyn, do you think this social media element is also influencing the way authors are writing? For example, I know with the music industry, it's often said that young artists are maybe writing songs that they think will do really well on TikTok or blow up on social media. Do you think it's a similar case for authors? I think that's always going to be the case because authors are part of the society in which we live in and they're always going to be influenced by what else is happening in the culture. But what I would say about book social media is as much as there is 
a hype and sort of excitement about books, readers aren't fools. So if someone's kind of grabbed a whole lot of tropes or things that are popular and put them together, but it doesn't quite work as a piece of um, literature, then it's not going to get traction beyond the sort of first initial, oh, that's a really cool idea. What are the genres that are really kicking off right now? That's what I'm keen to know popular fiction genres, in particular fantasy, um, young adult books and romance, the three that come up really a lot. And I'll talk about in terms of, um, of book talk, what the types of books that seem to really blow up are ones that really make readers feel something or shock them in some way. So they're sort of moving or gripping or uh, you see a lot of videos with people crying at the end of books. So they're sort of like emotional books. Um, with, with Bookstagram, you do see like it's very much in line with Instagram, the sort of aspirational visual culture. So when you've got sort of the beautiful book covers, um, those are the books that also tend to do really well on, on Bookstagram. Oh, fascinating stuff. I think, if anything, maybe this has shamed me a little into realising that I'm not reading enough. I need to get really around book talk. Dr. Bronwyn Redden from Deakin Uni, thank you very much for coming on Hack. My pleasure. It's lovely to talk to you. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.